after all the speculation about whether or not he would change the ancient and title of Defender of the Faith to Defender of Faiths, our new king, Charles III, has confirmed that there will be no change. In a statement as well to church leaders that he met on Friday, he stated, I am a committed Anglican Christian, and at my coronation I will take an oath relating to the settlement of the Church of England. At my accession, he said, I have already solemnly given, as has every sovereign over the last 300 years, an oath that pledges to maintain and preserve the Protestant faith in Scotland. Now, I'm praying, and I'm sure you are as well, as God enables and encourages us, God save our gracious King. Long live our noble King, God save that King. Send him victorious, happy, and glorious, long to reign over us. God save the King. And also, we are pleading before the throne of God, thy choicest gifts in storm on him. Be pleased to pour, long may he reign, may he defend our laws, and ever give us cause to sing with heart and voice, God save the King. And yet I know, even though our Queen, and now her son reigning on her throne as our King, even though they were anointed to reign under the authority of God in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, given the Holy Bible as the rule for the whole life and government of Christian princes, though that has happened with her queen, will happen with Charles, her ministers, they have passed law after law after law in opposition to the law and to the will of God. They have tried to run things by their own fallible wisdom without God. They bear a huge responsibility, therefore, for the way in which Britain has fallen into sin and misery. Now, good laws may not make men good of necessity, but they can and will restrain the wicked. And bad laws certainly encourage men and women to do evil, and do evil many are doing. Who can doubt that there's something deeply and drastically wrong with our United Kingdom today? Everybody, no matter where you go, meet them on the street, check out their driving patterns, and you'll find that everybody pretty much is looking out for themselves. Few appear to have any honor, any respect, and that's from the highest right down to the lowest. We have many people running about today where they're following a government line that has enabled them to do it, where children are encouraged into promiscuity where perversion is honored, where injustice is done in the courts, where the poor are robbed by the national lottery. The Christian faith is under attack from our medium and immoral activists as well. Politicians, we have many of them who lie and who cheat, and we start wars for no reason in foreign lands. Last but certainly not least, we kill our own children in what ought to be the safest place on God's earth. And so today we have secularism, and it is destroying our land, and Christianity is being pushed onto the margins, and Islam is waiting to fill the vacuum. The judgment of God 
is falling upon us. What can we do? The church today needs to develop a prophetic voice to say to our leaders, just like the Old Testament prophets, New Testament apostles, they were unafraid to do, woe was unto you because you call evil good and you call good evil. We must pray for our king and for our government as never before and pray that God will give the church big amounts of backbone in this day and generation. But our prayer needs to be more than just, Lord, do something. Our prayer needs to be, Lord, what can I do? When we work, we work. When we pray, God works. When we do both, God works. Mighty miracles, and it will take a miracle for our sad, dysfunctional nation to turn from its belief that we can do it ourselves, that man knows best, and turn again to trust in God and get back to the Bible. And that's why I've entitled the message this morning as The New King and the Old Bible. The New King and the Old Bible. Because as we have checked into Scripture this morning in the book of First Kings, the final chapter, and then the first chapter of the next book, Second Kings, we find we're at a juncture here where Israel had a new king. New man on the throne. Ahab, the former king, had fallen under the hand of the Lord. He'd been judged, and that throne of his was now filled by his son Ahaziah. Now, that wasn't exactly something to celebrate because Ahaziah was really only a chip of the old block, a virtual carbon copy of his father, a clone of him, a worthless character who served and worshipped the idol Baal just as his father and his mother Ahab and Jezebel had done. And Ahaziah, the new king in the throne, he had no more time for the message of heaven in his life, and he had no more time for the man who was bearing that message to the nation at that particular time, the man by the name of Elijah, than his father or his mother had done. And it's his treatment of the Word of God and God's treatment of him through that Word that we're going to look at this morning as we concentrate our thoughts around Second Kings chapter 1. I want you first of all to consider today God's Word is delivered and also disregarded. It is delivered and disregarded. We're looking at verse 1 through to the verse 8 of Second Kings chapter 1 right here. If ever there was a man who should have ordered his life in accordance with the Word of God, it was this new king Ahaziah. If ever there was a man who knew that it's a bad thing to reject God's Word, it was this new king Ahaziah. And so we had a warning in the Scriptures, a serious warning. The written Word of God that should have been ordering his steps, he knew full well in the writings of Moses, in the book of Deuteronomy, it made it clear as the noonday sun that there should be no idols in the land. 
that idolatry will never go unpunished by a righteous, a holy, and a jealous God. And he would have read that in Deuteronomy 6. He would have found it as well in Deuteronomy 13, beginning in verse 1, going right through to Deuteronomy 16. Three chapters of it. Verse 17, get idols out of the land. Worship and serve the one true God, Jehovah. He had a warning about this. Not only that, he only had to look over his shoulder at the calamitous example that his father had left him to discover God speaks to people. God judges sin. Ahab, his father, had disregarded the word of God. He had forced Israel to worship Baal. The result of that, a devastating famine had come in all over the land. How much Ahaziah his son had heard how much he had seen during the reign of his father. He had seen all of this turning from God and the consequences of it, and he should have been led to repentance. He had noticed the famine come sweeping over that entire land, just as Elijah had said it would. And he had also seen how that famine was broken and ended by the word of the same prophet of God. But he had seen more than that. He had seen the word of Elijah fulfilled in terms of the death of his own father because Elijah had prophesied that. You remember how King Ahab came, sinned. He seized the vineyard, didn't belong to him, the vineyard of Naboth. God responded to Ahab's sin by sending Elijah post east, sent him to the king with a message of devastating judgment. And Ahaziah knew. His son realized when he saw the dogs of Jezreel licking the blood of his father, that's what Elijah said would happen. God's word has been proven true again. So these were terrible realities. Fresh in Ahaziah's memory, surely this young man would be intelligent enough to obey the word of God right down to the final detail because he had seen the consequences of idolatry and disobedience before his very eyes in his very own home. And surely we would imagine him saying then, as he comes to the throne, if there's one thing that I have learned, it is not to do what my father or my mother did. Yet incredibly, this new king had learned nothing. And he acts as if these dramatic things had not even happened and instead of coming and humbling himself before the living God, his heart is still stuck to those idols in the land. The Bible tells us, 1 Kings 22 and verse 53, that upon assuming his father's throne, Ahaziah served Baal and worshipped him and provoked to anger the Lord God of Israel according to all that his father had done. He just went and duplicated his father's sins. Now, would God not have been justified without further ado or warning, just breaking into the palace, grabbing this man, Ahaziah, from his new throne, putting him off that, putting him in his grave, judging him the way he did his father? He would have been more than entitled to do that, but... He is a gracious, kind, long-suffering God. And so in Ahaziah's case, 
He gives not only these serious warnings, but he brings supplementary warnings across this man's bows as well. One thing, and there were three things, national aggravation. We read about that in 2 Kings 1 and 1. Then, he's just on the throne, Moab rebelled against Israel after the death of Ahab. Now, David, former king of Israel, had defeated and suppressed those Moabites. And for a huge number of years, they had paid servitude, tribute to Israel. But during the reign of Ahaziah, Moab rises up. Here's our chance. We've got a weak, wicked king, and they would be right. And they rebelled against him. So God stirred. God stirred. National aggravation in his land. Not only that, he gave him some personal affliction. Ahaziah suffered a fall, we read that, and he was seriously injured as a result of that fall. He'd been standing one day in a balcony of his palace, and the balustrade that he was leaning on suddenly gave way. He tumbles to the ground and is seriously injured. You read the Bible in 2 Kings 1 and verse 2, and Ahaziah fell down through a lattice in his upper chamber that was in Samarium and was sick. He's just on the throne, and what has he got? He has got national trouble. He has got personal trouble compounding that. Oh, was this just pure coincidence? Some today will dismiss them as that. But the truth is, God uses our circumstances to get our attention. And the Lord often arranges it that His judgments take hold of the ungodly at the very moment when they are at most ease. How often it has happened that men and women, and maybe they have a cup of festivity in their hands, or in our language, a big beer, and the noises of frivolity in their ears, and everything is bright lights and dancing and song and chaos, and they have suddenly been struck down by the scythe of God's judgment. And so down the new king tumbles. How did Ahaziah react? Did he turn to the Lord and seek his will? Far from it. He might be lying sick here, but he's in the same kind of mind on his sick bed as he was when he was in health. Instead of calling for help from the God of heaven, he sends messengers to go to one of the Philistine idols, Beelzebub, the God of Ekron, to see if Beelzebub would do anything to heal him of his injuries. And so we read, And Ahaziah fell down through a lattice in his upper chamber that was in Samarium, and was sick, and he sent messengers, and said unto them, Go inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron, whether I shall recover of that disease. This god was the Lord of Flies. Probably had the name on account of a plague of flies. It would have been pretty common to the region. Or it was thought of him that he was a protector from that plague. He wasn't doing much of a job, of course. They never do because they can't. They're false. But Lord of flies. What we have here is just another proof of the truth that we see displayed again and again and again in front of our eyes today. Even the most severe afflictions do not have the power to soften a sinner's heart. The power that stirs the mind, the power that converts the soul is not carried 
by misfortune or other outward events, but it comes solely because of the mercy and grace of God. Can I be turned from my sin, saved by my calamities from my sin? No, calamities won't save me. The Spirit of God alone can do that. It's only the mercy only the grace of a forgiving, long-suffering God that will turn me to repentance and to faith. I guess some would imagine that we would have some difficulty as we look around our country today. You know, we are so sophisticated and advanced now and technologically way ahead of anything these people ever knew. We wouldn't really have an equivalent, would we, in our day of this idol at Ekron in our country. I mean, surely gross idolatry is dead in this part of the globe. doesn't happen anymore. And in our politically correct world that seeps this political correctness out of every one of its pores, well, surely we are too educated and we are too enlightened today to consult with the devil or anything to do with him. I wish it were the case, but it's not. Close inspection reveals that our own philosophic age is full of this old heathen opinion. Romanism is still rampant despite numerous embarrassing setbacks. Idolatry still lives on. New ageism remains rife. Satanism and witchcraft are spreading their tentacles once more. And we haven't therefore come any distance away from where they were, this ancient consultation with the fly-god idol of Ekron. Now, we really shouldn't be surprised that we are just the same as they, because when men and women dismiss the Word of God from their lives, isn't that what happened here? Isn't that what's happening now? When men and women dismiss God's Word from their lives, this is the road they end up going down. Disbelief in the Word of God from the mouth of His messenger. It leads into old or new forms of superstition and ignorance. The old German commentator and preacher F.W. Krumacher said, those who scorn to submit this feeling to the rule of Scripture are sure to sink under the dominion of darkness and imposture. And our nation, having turned its back on the Bible, is just walking through darkness. And that's inevitable. Instead of the idol at Ekron, we have today pretended prophets and fortune tellers and horoscopes and amulets and charms. Times haven't changed too much at all in this respect. Ahaziah sent to Akron to make inquiry of Beelzebub, but instead of the lying voice of an idol, he hears the awful words of the living God. You see, God was not stopping. National aggravation, personal affliction, there's more. Verbal affirmation in 2 Kings 1, 3 to 4. We find here that Elijah, he intercepts these messengers going to the false god, and he sends them back to Ahaziah saying, you're not going to recuperate, king. You're going to die. Can you picture the scene? The messengers flowing out of the palace from Ahaziah, making their way in the direction of Ekron to consult with Beelzebub. 
and God brings Elijah right across their path, gives him a third opportunity, another supplementary warning to those that had been already given. And they're just working out, how long is our journey here? When will we get to Ekron? What are we going to say? What will be our petition? All the rest of it. And then there's this living barrier that's standing right in front of them. And it's not a troop of angels. It's not kneeled men in military armor. But it's a single man. Majestic figure. Clothed in a mantle of animal hair. No armor. No weaponry. And they're looking and then then in the king's court, their eyes are popping out in astonishment here at the sight of this individual, and they just put on the brakes, and the whole train comes to a halt, and they say, the Tishbite, it's him. It's the Tishbite, Elijah. And that term sends shock waves of fear down through that group that day. And Elijah tells them, in verse 3, is it not because there is not a God in Israel? that ye go to inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron. Now therefore thus saith the Lord, he's still speaking, thou shalt not come down from that bed in which thou art gone up, but shalt surely die. And having delivered the message, Elijah just spins on his heel and goes away. I can imagine those men looking at each other. What's just happened? What have we just heard? This is incredible. They had no clue what to say. But one thing they did know, there was no point in pushing on to Ekron now. And so King Ahaziah spread out in his bed, supposing his messengers, they must have got near Ekron by now. They'll have covered quite a bit of the distance. And he's shocked because the door of his apartment and chamber swings open. Those messengers are standing now in front of his bed. They can't have been to Ekron and back. No, they weren't. And they tell him what happened. And he recognizes it's Elijah. It's that man again bringing God's word to my heart. You see what had happened? God had brought his man back onto the scene again. His ministry wasn't yet over. The enemy was going to feel the power and the impact of that ministry. Ahaziah, you've another word of warning, another chance to turn and repent and seek God. And maybe, maybe, maybe that's what's happening with you. God's been speaking to your heart. You're off track. You're not walking with me. You haven't repented, turned from your sin and iniquity and called on me for my mercy. You're plodding on because you think my way is the right way, is the best way, is my choice. I will do as I please. I'm the boss. No, you're not. God always is. And here's a young king. And he ends up reigning but two years, two short years. Because right from the start, he set his mind against the Word of God, dangerous thing. So the first thing that we have noticed here, God's Word is delivered and disregarded. And then more quickly, His Word is dared, and His Word is defied. Imagine this. Here's a man, and now, Ahaziah, he just slid from his throne onto his deathbed. And on his deathbed, what's he doing? 
He's daring and defying the Word of God. Elijah's message infuriated him. You're not going to survive this. You're going to die. And so he sends out a captain with 50 men to capture God's prophet. What he's saying effectively is this, I don't like the message, so I'm going to destroy the messenger. The pride, the stupidity of this young king almost beggars belief. His problem was not with Elijah, but it was with Elijah's God. How could he be so deluded that if I take one human being off the face of the earth because he's announcing the Word of God to me, that I am going to destroy God? How could he be so foolish as to imagine that? Think, Ahaziah. Your father went down the same line and remember how it turned out for him. And Ahaziah knows this man that he's going to attack, Elijah. He's seen God do mighty acts through him. He's seen when his own father was closing in on him, all of a sudden the Almighty was a shield around Elijah, and no weapon formed against him was able to prosper. And yet none of that stops him from taking the field against the prophet and virtually declaring war on the king of kings. It's a crazy thing to do. And we can shake our heads in disbelief at Ahaziah's reaction to Elijah's message, but maybe the same old syndrome is alive in us. God is saying something, we're not listening. We don't want to hear. Ahaziah's attempt here to silence God's word met with devastating results. You see it in 2 Kings 1 and verse 9, the captain, and he gets up onto the summit, and he's bringing his 50 men up behind him, and the captain, he addresses Elijah, thy man of God, the king hath said, come down. God had said to the king, you're not coming down. He flips the word to Elijah, you come down. And those soldiers of Ahaziah approach God's prophet. And there he is sitting, solitary, silent. But he sits, Elijah does, like a king, on his throne, secure in his God, surrounded by an invisible guard. And he looks at this host coming up the hill towards him with their glittering weaponry. But he knows who they're coming from, what their intention is. But he's not afraid of them because he's in his invisible and yet impregnable fortress. God is defending him. To understand what is going on here, we need to put emphasis on those four little words, the king hath said. That's what is recorded in 2 Kings 1 and 9. The king hath said. Well, hold on a minute. Elijah has spoken. God has spoken through Elijah already, and now the king has spoken. Elijah had spoken the word of God to the king, and now the king is speaking back his own word to Elijah, through Elijah, unto God. He is pitting his word against the Word of God, and he's trying to shout louder than God, silence God's Word. How many people are doing the same today? Yes, they say, I know the Bible says such and such, but I'm going to do this anyway. They will say, yeah, you know, 
The Bible does outlaw that, but times are different now. We must flow with the times. God's Word hasn't changed, let me remind you, and it never shall. It is for our good that it does not change. But the common denominator in all of those kind of statements is the placing of our thoughts and our words over above the Word of God. And every time we or somebody else is doing this, we are saying with Ahaziah here, the Word of God needs silenced and my voice needs heard above it. What happens? Look at verse 10. And Elijah answered and said to the captain of 50, If I be a man of God, then let fire come down from heaven and consume thee and thy 50. And there came down fire from heaven and consumed him and his 50. Terrible event. But through that terrible event, Ahaziah received yet another reminder of the truth and the power and the authority of the Word of God. And yet again, he refused to bow to it. How hard the human heart is by nature. When news reached him about the death of the first company of 50 men, he becomes so full of rage that instead of acknowledging, I am fighting against a power I cannot overcome, I'm on dangerous ground here. But again, he pits himself against the Word of God, sends out another 50 men, and loses again. The second captain, his 50 men, were consumed exactly the same way as the first. We don't glory in what happened here. And for many people of God, they have looked at this passage, and it's puzzled them. They'd have no problem if the king himself, who had confronted Elijah, had suffered this fate. But 50 men, and then another 50 men. Why did God consume these captains and their men? Answers on a postcard, please. It could be that these men were in complete sympathy with their king had nothing but resentment and hostility against the prophet and his God, his word. We know that during Ahab's reign, the godly in the land had dwindled to a very small minority. Only a little remnant was left. And so we shouldn't be surprised if these men of themselves deserve this kind of judgment. But something that must be underlined, and we see it through human history again and again, we're not an island. We don't do things that don't affect anybody else. Everything we do does affect people. We do not sin alone. If we choose wickedness, then we shouldn't be surprised to see the impact of wickedness snake through our friends and our families as well. And some who would profess to be shocked and scandalized by, look what God did here, sent fire on those poor soldiers. They're not realizing the problem here is not God's judgment, but the king's wickedness. It was his sin that brought this calamity on the heads of his soldiers. And we need to remember the times in which Elijah lived. It was because the cancer of idolatry had so deeply eaten into the heart of God's chosen people that we are now at the stage where we need not a little bit of ointment to be applied, but severe action to be taken to wake the nation up and steer it away from its evil and into good. What Elijah did 
under the old dispensation were not called upon to do in the new. If you check out in Luke 9, 54 to 56, we have James and John, and they're leaning on what happened right here in 2 Kings chapter 1, and they come to the Lord, and they said, Lord, wilt thou that we command fire to come from heaven and consume them, even as Elijah did? Jesus turned and rebuked them and said, Ye know not what manner of spirit ye are of, for the Son of Man is not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And I would much rather be a herald of mercy than an announcer of justice. And while there's grace, while there's space, Let's turn and acknowledge God's Word. His Word is delivered and disregarded. His Word is dared and defied. And then finally, His Word is desired and it's demonstrated. After the second band of soldiers, the other 50 men came in and they were consumed, you might have thought, Ahaziah, you've plenty of time. You're lying on your bed. You've got these two reports. See them result both times. Surely that reminds you that your power is futile. And you know what? You need to sue for peace. You need to call a truce here because this is a war that you cannot possibly win. But he's like Pharaoh. He just digs in his heels. He becomes more stubborn, more brazen, more adamant than he was before. What does he do? He sends out a third captain with 50 men. Ahaziah, this is cruel, as well as daft. But when that captain, you'll notice what happens there when he encounters Elijah, he comes in an entirely different way. He says nothing about the word of the king. He doesn't come up as the former two had said, Thus saith the king. He knew that wasn't going to work. It didn't before. So he says nothing about the word of the king. He knew that word was meaningless. That word was powerless. What counted was the word of God. And he recognized that word of God cannot be successfully challenged or defied. I must accept it. I must embrace it. If my king had any wisdom, he'd do the same. So he didn't try to pit the word of the king against the word of God as the others had done. Instead, he put a sword in the scabbard. He came to the prophet of God with reverence. He bowed before Elijah. He pleaded for his own life and for the lives of those who were with him. And that captain, the third one, and his band of men were spared. How Elijah must have rejoiced at the submission to the Lord shown by this third captain that saved him from vindicating the honor of Jehovah for a third time by calling down fire from heaven. And it's then... The Lord assured Elijah that Ahaziah would do nothing more to harm him, that he should go along with these third company of soldiers back to the king, appear before him. And so in verse 15 of 2 Kings 1, we read, God saying to Elijah, go down with him, be not afraid of him. What's going to happen now? There's going to be repetition. Elijah is now going to walk right into the middle of the enemy camp in Samaria. 
as Dr. Pacey once did in the European Parliament. And what he's going to do here is he's going to repeat the judgment of God on this enraged king. Do you know what God's command, God's promise lifted him above every fear, every anxiety? He leaves the lonely hills and he quickly moves by the side of this third captain into the royal city, sweeps into the capital city like a conqueror, would go through the gates of a fortress that he has captured. And once he's in the king's presence, Elijah gives the same message that he did right at the beginning. Nothing had changed it. Nothing had intimidated God's man. He just tells the king face to face, you are not going to recover from your injuries. This is the word of the Lord. Now, he knows he's a very ungodly man. But Elijah shows some respect for the office of the king, as we must still do. And he sticks to the message entrusted him by the Lord. English Bishop Hugh Latimer once preached a message before King Henry VIII, and Henry VIII was greatly offended. The king, in fact, ordered Hugh Latimer to come back, preach before me the next Sabbath day, and make a public apology for the offense you caused me last Sunday. So the bishop got into the pulpit next time around, read out his text, began a sermon like this, Hugh Latimer, dost thou know before whom thou art this day to speak? To the high and mighty monarch, the king's most excellent majesty, who can take away thy life if thou offendest. Therefore, take heed that thou speakest not a word that may displease. But then, you consider well, dost thou not know from whom thou comest, upon whose message thou art sent, even the great and mighty God who was all present and able to cast thy soul into hell, therefore take care that thou deliverest thy message faithfully. And with increased energy, Latimer preached the same message as he had the week before. He was willing to break through the fear of man because he was captivated by the fear of God. And Elijah did exactly that here. And there was, of course, as well as recognition, repetition, there was ratification. In verse 16, what do we read? 2 Kings 1, Thus saith the Lord, Forasmuch as thou hast sent messengers to inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron, is it not because there is no god in Israel to inquire of his word? Therefore thou shalt not come down off that bed on which thou art gone up, but shalt surely die. That's a big claim to make. But look at verse 17, the next verse, So he died according to the word of the Lord, which Elijah had spoken, and Jehoram reigned instead in the second year of Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, because he had no son. So what we have here is a passage that isn't myth, it isn't legend, it isn't a make-up story here. It doesn't tell us about a God who no longer exists. It's packed with sober truth for us to think about. And what does it do? It calls on you, it calls on me to examine our attitude towards God and His Word. Are we to 
defying it as Ahaziah did? Are we pitting our thoughts and our words against it in a challenge as he did? Or are we trying to sidestep it, ignore it, hoping we won't hear it anymore? Or like the third captain, are we bowing in submission to it no matter what we do? Here's what's going to happen. No matter what we do, the Word of God is going to be confirmed, and it's going to be vindicated, and there's nothing you or I can do to change that. The only thing that can be changed is our attitude to God's truth. When our king comes to his coronation, he will hear words that his mother and all previous monarchs for many, many years have heard And it'll bring this into focus, the new king and the old Bible. Because our king will be presented with a copy of the Scriptures by the moderator of the Church of Scotland, and in the middle of his description of this book, the moderator will say it's the most valuable thing that this world affords. And if our king should reign as best he can by the power of God's Word, he will be a glorious king. If he goes against it, he'll just be another Ahaziah. Do not ignore God's Word. I'm appealing to our hearts. Don't challenge it. Don't defy it. Rather, embrace it with a full heart. Because this is 100% guaranteed he will do and vindicate everything that he has said. 